Thank you for listening in to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. Our current sermon series is from the book of 1 Corinthians. For more information, visit our website at cumberlandcornerstone.org. Okay, okay, good morning again. I did have that on my list of things to do. Children dismissed since I missed it last week, and I, I was all ready for it, just ready to get it right in David trumped me on that. So anyway, it is good to be here. And one thing I do appreciate is you might not notice it as much but uh, out there, but David and Pastor Dave, uh, and he does it for me, they try to uh, coordinate the songs with the message. And as uh, if you would listen to, that, to that song, those songs and you can bring them up in your mind, you can pretty well get a, an idea of what the lesson is going to be about. And uh, as I look in this... Um, was working this week. It took me to about Wednesday to really decide what I wanted to do. So uh, I thought to myself, I wanted to do a cultural issue. I wanted to, was thinking about continuing on in the, in the Exodus, but now I want to do something a little bit about culture and where people are today in our culture. And, and there's a buzzword today. It's called uh, social justice. Have you ever heard that term, social justice? And, uh, and I want to give you, first of all, what it is not, uh, what we're not talking about when we talk about social justice. We're not talking about legal justice, that somebody's harmed or you have a right to go to court or you have a right to do something legally. That, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about social justice. And I want to nail this down because as I go through this lesson, I need you to keep that in your mind so that it's not misinterpreted some of the things I say or some of the things that might come across harsh or might come across easy, but uh, I'm going to do the best I can with it without trying to offend in any way, but also preach the truth and what I feel the truth is. Uh, the second thing, it's things, uh, not things, or things lawful or unlawful. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are the world's talking about social justice. This is their word, not mine. Okay, social justice. I'm not talking about good or bad. Uh, I'm not even talking about divine justice with, that, uh, with this. I'm not talking about divine justice or, or even biblical justice. A word definition of the word social justice in our culture today goes more like this. That I'm deprived of privilege in, privilege in my culture. I have been deprived of privilege that somebody else owes me in my culture. Or, I've been deprived of power because of somebody else. I'm the unempowered. Okay? So we want social justice. I'm deprived of a position because of somebody else. I've been deprived of property or status or prosperity. In other words, there's no justice for me in this culture. That's what I'm talking about with social justice, and I'll define it a little bit more as we go. In other words, it's to sum it up in the one word that I want to look at this morning is, I am a victim. And we live in a culture today that when things don't go right, or things are this or that, then I, I use that victim status to suppress those I feel are suppressing me. Social justice is based on the premise that I am a victim. Basic human assumption is this, that I am basically good and that somebody else is keeping me down. Uh, it has taken over our society and mainstream and thought that everyone is a victim. And if you're not a victim in our culture, then you need to sit down and shut up because you don't have a right to say anything. So everybody wants to be a victim so that they have a right to say or involve themselves in the culture. Now listen, I'm not saying that we all haven't suffered at the hands of somebody else because we have. 
I'm not saying we haven't been treated unjustly or unfairly. I'm not saying at times we haven't been uh, mercilessly treated. Some people have been brutally treated. Totally mistreated. And that is truly form of a victim, physically victim. But the, the danger is... And being a victim is if you're a victim and nothing's your fault, then you're not to blame for anything. And that's not scriptural. And we live in a culture today that wants to say that I'm not responsible for where I'm at. Somebody else has put me there. And that is a false gospel. And I want to get into that. But even the psalmist Asaph said this here in Psalm 73. Why do the, uh, why do the wicked prosper and yet it seems like the righteous struggle? And remember, he's the same one that wrote uh, the psalm I looked at last week that was saying that he was in a lot of turmoil and struggle in his life. Things weren't going for him well, and he would meditate and remember the promises of God. And the conclusion of his psalm, as he writes it in this Psalm 73, is because the end of the wicked is destruction. Jesus said, listen, if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, what have you gained? Listen, let me get you excited about something. No matter what someone takes from you, no matter what property has been taken from you, person, property, whatever. Listen, if we're in Christ, we get it all. The earth deed belongs to us and God is going to give it back to you if that helps you in bitterness and upsetness. And I know we get that way. It's the way our human nature is. But God said one day, listen folks, you can hold on to something you can't keep. You can hold on to everything that you have materialistic. You can't keep any of it. Or you can send some things ahead and let God reward you in the future and you'll inherit it all. And that's what God has made a promise to us. Their end is destruction. And we know that we live in a fallen world. History has told us, listen, history has told us that at least 170 million people have been victimized by genocide. For no war of their own, no nothing of their own, just because either their, uh, their, their race, their creed, their color, their religion, their beliefs. 170 million people, that's, that's half of our population in our country, at least half. 1.64 billion people or close to that have been killed just due to war. We live in a fallen, sinful state in a world that is sinful. Now, let me give you this here. What is the danger to the church concerning the social justice movement? Or that I am not... I am not responsible for what I do. I'm a victim. What is its danger to us as a people? First of all, it is built on the premise that we are victims. And let me get you, let's get this straight. This is really important. It's one of the keynotes of the keynote speaker today. All right? We are the perpetrators and lawbreakers, not the victim. Scripturally, we are the perpetrator and the law breakers and we are enemies of God and if anyone is a victim or been victimized it is God if anyone has done anything to anyone we have rebelled and broken the commandments of God we first of all and has to be established in our culture honestly and I know it's been so far removed we are perpetrators of the goodness and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the God and the God of heaven the second thing that uh, social justice has a tendency to do, it removes personal responsibility. I am not responsible for what I, listen, I, I, you can go to just about anyone and take, just for an example, I, 
I had a, the teachers will appreciate this. There's, I'm not going to give no names. I wouldn't do that. But a, um, a young kid is having trouble in school. So I was talking to the parent about the kids having school. And the first thing the parent said, if, 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 the, the teachers and the other students are the ones that's causing my daughter's problems. And this thing just reared right up in me studying. I thought, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not saying that other people's influences and stuff can't affect some of our, uh, the way we bend or move. But ultimately, I looked at him and I said, doesn't she bear some responsibility in the situation? Well, sure. We have a, I have a saying we used to carry on with at school. I've talked to you about it before. When you point your finger at somebody, how many are pointing back at you? Three. So when you point your finger at somebody, remember three is pointing back at yourself. And that's what God is saying. Listen, I don't want you blaming. And we're going to get into this in Ezekiel chapter 18. I don't want you blaming everybody for everything that's happening to you. And here's the point in tow. Israel was in captivity and they were blaming the previous generation for all of their trouble. And we're going to get into that. And I'll show you that here in just a little bit. But here in Proverbs 19.3, a tremendous portion of scripture. Don't turn there. Because I, here, I, and I said that for a reason. I don't like to go through a whole lot of, of scriptures because people get tired. I mean, half of you are asleep already. I just started. But as we go through different scriptures, people say, oh, not another one, not another. I try to bring that way under control. So sometimes I'll read some and I want to give you this. You can write it down though. Proverbs 19.3 says, the foolishness of a man ruins his ways. Who is God saying is responsible for ruining your way? Give it to me. Who is responsible for ruining your way? The neighbor? No, it says a man is responsible. Mankind, man. You are responsible for ruining your own way. Now listen, what it says, when things don't go right, the verse continues and says this. And his heart rages against God. I don't like where I'm at. You put me here. You... Here's an age-old one. Listen, we all struggle with this. Tell me if I'm not right. Now, now God, if you wouldn't have put that tree right there, woman would not have ate man out of house and home. How many's with me, right? Huh? But think about it for just a second. God, if you wouldn't have put that tree there, you know when we say that, what we're saying? You know what we're saying? Come on, be honest with me. God, it's your fault. If you wouldn't have done that, we wouldn't be here. The third thing, the danger of social justice is this. It totally dismisses the power of the gospel. Because if I'm not responsible for myself, and I'm not really doing anything wrong, then I don't need to repent, and I don't need a savior. And in Ezekiel, when we get there, God says in Ezekiel chapter 18, 4, the soul that sins will die. You ever notice why everybody dies? Because you've sinned. And it wasn't somebody else. And the first place that we start is taking on responsibility before God that I am a sinner. Listen, this is why so many people are not coming to the gospel anymore. The serious note of it is this. They don't see themselves as sinners. And here's another thing. We've changed the words and the dialect and the language we speak that sin and sinner don't even resonate in their mind and heart anymore. Wrongdoing doesn't even occur to them. And even in the, the Bible says in the last days they won't even blush at sin. Sin. 
A person that accepts the fact that he is a victim and is no longer sinning against God, but it will justify his own actions because somebody else is in the doings of it. And social justice is not a part of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. It has no part of it. I wrote this down. Society encourages sin, but will not tolerate the guilt that it produces. Our culture encourages us to sin and accept it and behave in it, but they want nothing to do with its consequences or the guilt in which it produces. But that guilt that it produces is the conscience prompting the heart to change. And as we deaden that conscience and we callous that conscience, then sin no longer affects our lives. And we begin to accept things we would have never have accepted in the past. I put this down as just a, a local example as... Um, we must be careful not to strip away everything. Now get this. We must be careful not to strip away everything that offends people for the result of keeping them in church. Well, what does that mean, Dave? That we start browbeating people and we start pounding the pulpit and we start telling them all that they're doing wrong? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But there is a such thing as sin and breaking God's commandment and going astray and needing to repent and to come back. Because the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for what? Doctrine, for, for, for reproof, and for correction and righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped to do the work of the ministry. And as human natures, we tend to run away from God and not to him. He is tracking us down. You know, when you look around our area and you think like, what has, how many churches are just continually shutting down? Just continually closing. They're all over the place. They're on the, 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 the ash heap of history. And as Americans, uh, it, it used to be said that you could start at the gospel, 70% in the 50s, you could start at the gospel and give them the gospel and they would understand sin and all its consequences and come to Christ. They say that only 30% of people even understand any of that concept, that you have to almost go back now to Genesis in a non-religious, non-God culture and begin to explain to them the fall of man and the spiritual death of man and the repentance of man and the judgment of God because they don't have a clue anymore because we don't live in that culture. And everybody has their ideas why these churches are closing. I've had people come to me and say, now listen, don't, don't get the big head, all right? I don't want you to get the big head. But they'll say, I've had people say, why does Cornerstone growing and I go by there and there's all these cars and it's, it's full, but yet our church hardly has anybody. Now listen, it isn't because we're a great people, folks. I'm not trying to be rude. I think we're a good, kind, giving people. And I'm not going to browbeat you with that. But, but as long as we stay true to the principles of God, that is loving your enemy, loving those that despise you, Staying true to doctrine, staying true to the principle of the word of God and preaching the church, truth, whether it's in season or whether it's out, God will bless. But when we begin to remove those statutes from our 
person, our church, then God will begin to remove himself from us. I put it down this here in Mark chapter 7, kind of brings this out. Again, we're not going there. Uh, First of all, many churches have deviated from the pure gospel. They offer no message of hope, purpose, or salvation. It is generic reading of things. It doesn't have the gospel in it, and there's no transformation. And you can't be saved without the gospel. And if you're not saved, then God is not in your presence. God's not there. If you're not preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God, God's not there. You're just in a social club. I don't have time for that, honestly. I don't want that. I wouldn't go there. I have things I can do on Sunday mornings and go to a social club. They were unable at times to teach biblical sin and no repentance. Feelings then became more important than the truth. Truth trumps feelings. Feelings can deceive you. You ever fall in love with someone when you were a kid and thought you were going to marry them and you didn't? (laughs) Fooled by a feeling? And you feel like a fool. That's a joke, okay? (laughs) It's really an old song, to be honest with you. (laughs) In Mark chapter 7, the the, the, uh, Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus and said, "Why why aren't your disciples doing what we tell them to do? Why aren't they doing this and this and this? And Jesus reprimands them and He basically tells them, you put your traditions over the commandments of God. You've perverted the scriptures. And not after you did that, he said, then after you, your your traditions trumped the word of God and it became as important as the word. And you can see that in some major denominations today, I'm not going to mention them, where their traditions are equal with the word of God. That is a falsehood. Then after a while, they remove the commandments of God and their traditions come up over or are more important than the commandments of God. And then eventually, they reject the word of God. And then the word of God becomes of no effect. And that's why so many churches that have no living life in them are closing all over the place. They're all over closing because there's no power, there's no message, there's no change of transformation, there's no drive, there's nothing to offer the people but readings, a prayer, and a dismissal. Now listen, we've inherited from the garden the blame game. It's just like you inherit things from your parents, whether it's your eye color, whether it's the way you walk, you talk. I I was out there... uh, uh, Woodward Kroll's son was speaking, right, the other week. And I, I didn't get to get in, in to see him, but I was standing out front, and I would have swore I was listening to Woodward Kroll. I mean, I mean, it's it sounded just like him. And he's picked that up as a trait from his father. And we pick up traits. And the blame game and the victim, uh, being a victim is the blame game from Adam and Eve, they started the process and we've inherited and it's, we're just as guilty as them. Let me give you an example of that. First, we know that Eve, she was the first sinner, right? So she disobeys and she blames what? She blames the snake. And then Adam, he sins and then he blames the woman and he blames God. We know that story. It was the blame game. It's not my, so here's God. Think about this because if we get a chance, I hope I get there. Uh, you know, God's probably like rearing back like, are you serious? I mean, you're blaming me because I said don't do that and you did it anyway? You know, mom, dad, if you wouldn't have gave the kids the bedroom, they wouldn't have to clean it. 
Am I right? If you wouldn't feed them, they wouldn't have to wash their hands before they ate. It's your fault. And that's how we're made. Get it right. And we're always looking for a way to squirt out of having to follow the principles of God because somebody else has created an environment I can't serve you in. The second thing is, remember Aaron and Moses goes up on the mountain and all the great things that they had seen and it's thundering and it's lightning up there and the commandments are being given and all of a sudden Moses delays. He delays coming down the mountain and he delays it so long that the people start saying, Aaron, we don't even know what happened to that guy. I mean, he might have went over to the other side and he's back in Egypt. We don't know what he's doing. He's gone. He wouldn't be, it wouldn't take this long for him to come down. We want you to do something, Aaron. Make us a golden calf. Make us something we can worship. And this is what Aaron says. I mean, it is so ludicrous, so over the top, just unbelievable stuff. He said, okay, get your gold together. And then Moses comes down and, and, and he, he says, get your gold together. And he makes him a calf. We know that. So Moses comes down and says, uh, Aaron, hey, uh, I'm back. You know, I'm here. Uh, what's going on here? This is, uh, this is really strange. There's this calf, this golden calf, and people are worshiping. And he said, well, he said, now this is what he said. He said, now Moses, this is Moses, you, you know these people are really hard to deal with. That's what he said. They, you know they're really hard to deal with. And they forced me into this. And he said, I, now this is what he says. I took all that gold, I put it in a pot, and puff, I, this thing popped out. That's exactly what he said. And out came the calf. Are you serious? You didn't form this thing? It just come out. That's what he says. It just, boom, it was there. Same thing goes on with Samuel. And I'm not going to get there because I, I don't want to, uh, I'm going to run out of time. Let's go to Ezekiel though. Now I want to show you what God says about why we're responsible for ourselves and how important it is. And how it goes from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. Each generation is responsible for themselves. First of all, who was Ezekiel? Ezekiel and Jeremiah were friends. They were, they were contemporaries. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was in exile. And God said, Ezekiel, I want you to go down and preach to the people in exile and I want you to tell them something. Now keep that in mind because he's down there with a, with a griping people. Okay, so, so he's down there. Let's just get a little history on him. See who he was. Uh, that God raised him up. Chapter 3 and verse 4. Chapter 3 and verse 4. One thing is he's called son of man. Son of man. That's unique because who else is called son of man? Jesus himself was son of man. He says, then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. I want you, now get this, this is important. It's kind of like me speaking to you. Are you speaking to me? I want you to go to your people, not outside there. You're going into exile specifically to your people, and I want you to talk to them my words. Now, verse 5, for you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech or of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. In other words, I'm not sending you to another country who speaks another language that you can't relate to. And you're going to have to work around all those obstacles. You're going to a people that speak your tongue, your language. They know uh, their script, their word, their, your, my scriptures, who I am. They know everything. You're going to a familiar people, not an unfamiliar people. But look at it, what God says. I love it. It's sad. It's the truth. But he says, surely had I sent you to them, they would have listened. You know, the first thing when I read that, 
I thought of two things. I thought, wowee, the people of God want nothing to do with him. They won't listen to his words. They won't obey it. They rebel. They find every avenue, corner, and, and way around to not have to perform it. And God said, if I would send you to a different people, they would accept it. And the first thing that came to my mind was Jonah and Nineveh. And God sent Jonah to Nineveh to repent. Remember, he didn't want to. And he got sucked up by a great fish. Remember? You got to wonder too. Do you think Jonah ever ate fish after that? You ever been? I mean, seriously, think about this just for a second. You ever smell rotten fish? It's disgusting. But anyway, he smelled like rotten fish. But anyway, he said, listen, go to my people and preach the word to them. Now, here's what he says to them. Interesting stuff. He says, but the house of Israel will not listen to you because why? Just like Jesus said, they reject you because they rejected me. They don't want to listen. For all the house of Israel, uh, they are disrespectful to me. Impudent and hard-hearted. Now get this. Behold, I have made your face strong against their face and your forehead strong against their forehead like an adamant stone harder than flint. I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them nor be dismayed at their looks though they are rebellious people. In other words, your personality is equal your character. I'm going to put this in you. They are going to be hard, in your face, stubborn, uncompromising, and I'm going to make you the same exact way in your person that when you come against them, you're going to stand there and it ain't going to bother you. You're not going to go home at night sick whether or not you offended them or not because they are hard people. You are going to be made as hard as flint and you are going to speak the truth to them whether they like it or whether they don't. History tells us one day, uh, uh, church historians tell us later on in the future, Jesus said, you kill the prophets. And Ezekiel confronted a, a, a man that was committing adultery and he stabbed him and murdered him. And that's how his ministry was ended. God said, I'm gonna make you as hard as them. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. I want to show you a couple things in this, in this uh, chapter. First thing I want to show you is found in verse 4 and also verse 20. In a quick line, God says this at the end of verse 4. The soul who sins shall die. The soul that sins. You know, death is the equalizer. It takes the rich, it takes the poor, it takes the young, it takes the old. It takes us all. And you have one lifetime to get ready for it. I was talking to a guy yesterday. I was witnessing to him. And I said, you have one uh, short period of time to come to Christ. I said, and you don't know when it is. I said, you just had an accident up the road there, a severe accident. That day could have been your day. I said, but you got to come to Christ. He said, I'm not ready to do that. I said, I can't, I can't help you. I can't help you. But when God gets disgusted with something, he gets disgusted with it. And here's, let's just go down through this chapter a little bit. It says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, this is God saying this. What do you mean when you use the proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use that proverb in Israel. You have sung this little song so long in my face that you will no longer say it. I'm going to stop it. You know what that little proverb was saying? It was saying this. 
Our fathers have sinned against you, God, and you are punishing us for them. And we are bearing the blunt of everything that they did. And God said, not on your life. The soul that sins will die. And you are as responsible as them. And you are the same as them. There is no difference. You're as wicked as they are. And that's why you're down here. That's why you're in captivity in Ezekiel. Remember in Jesus' time, the Pharisees swore up and down that they weren't like their forefathers. That, and Jesus said, you are identical to your forefathers. In fact, many people would have repented that they would have seen the things that you have seen. So the first thing I want you to get is the sinner's delusion in God's reality. The sinner's delusion and God's reality. It is not God's fault. It is not somebody else's fault. We are in a sinful condition and you and I individually need a redeemer. We are not victims. We are perpetrators against God. I could get into other verses on that, but I just don't have time. I wrote this down in my own thinking. Yes, prior generations have messed things up. And the reality shows up in future generations. But there's still a responsibility not to participate in its sinful behaviors. And not only its behaviors, not to participate in its philosophies. If one does not get judged, if one does, one gets judged with that generation. But each individual has an opportunity to stop the cycle in their own life and impact that culture. You have that power in you and the Holy Spirit to stop the cycle and impact the future. This generation in Ezekiel refused to do that. They threw their hands up and said, it's not our fault. You never gave us a chance. It's their fault and you're punishing us. Almost like a child. God, you're punishing us. And later on in this chapter, they say, you're not fair, God. You're not fair, God. That's what they say to him. It's crazy. The time in which we live is moving us in the most rapid pace I have ever seen in the destruction of anything that's good, godly, or moral. And then we want to blame everybody in the past. And I'm not saying the past did not help create the environment, but we're still individually responsible the second thing I want you to see is the sinner's delusion defended and God's truth illustrated. We're going to do a little reading here, but I want to show you three generations, three generations of people. Let's look at it. The soul that sins shall die. And that verse 4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, and that soul that sins shall die. Now get this as we read it. But if a man is just... And does what is lawful and right. If he has not eaten of the mountain, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his, his neighbor's wife, committed adultery, nor approached a woman during her impurity. If he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtors his pledge. In other words, paid back his debts. If he has done, done no robbery by violence, and has fed the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing. If he has not exacted usuries, nor taken any increase. In other words, loaned money without charging interest. But has withdrawn his hands from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man. If he walks in my statutes and keeps my judgment faithfully, he is what? Just. And he shall what? He shall live. Now God said the soul that sins dies. He said this representates, represents a just man living a just way that shows forth his fruit that he belongs to God and that he is just. Now that's the grandfather 
there was a man. Now, this trickle down is going to show you that righteousness is not generationally pushed through. It's not generationally goes from one generation to the next. It goes from person to person. Now look at it. If this grandfather or this man begets a son who is a robber, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of these duties, but has eaten the mountains and defiled and goes on and on and on, it goes down there. If he has done all, any of these abominations, he shall surely die and his blood shall be upon him. That is a father that is saved, that raises a child that is lost. And God said it's not the father's responsibility. He had responsibility raising that child, nurturing that child in the admonition of the Lord, bringing him up in the word of God. Absolutely. But if that child rejects that truth, that is not on the father. God said I will not judge the father for the son's sin. And that's what the point he's bringing out to the Jews. He's saying, I'm not judging you down here for your father's sins per se. They're yours too. And you're just as rebellious. Now, look at the grandson. The father says, if, if however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers, uh, and considers but does not do likewise who has eaten of the mountain that goes all the way through to verse 17 because of time restraints it says what he shall surely what live three generations mentioned in them scriptures the father the son and the grandson and God said each one of those individuals are responsible for each individual soul listen you are responsible for yourself before God whether you walk out of here today lost or saved you will not point the finger at God you will not be able to accuse him you will not be able to say it is his fault Well, I'll give you something in closing here. Look at um, verse 21. God is, gives an altar call to Israel. He says, but if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has com uh, committed and keep all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. God said, listen, I'm giving you an invitation. If you want to do what's right and you want to follow my statutes, you will not die. Look while the Jews responded to the altar call of God. I wish I could go into this deeper. I can't. It says, verse 25, yet you say, even though I personally am inviting you to repent and come to me, you say the way of the Lord is not what? Fair. We're not interested, God. There has to be another way. I'm not doing it. You can't be the only one that's right. You're not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your way which is not? And let me challenge you with just a thought. Go back to Jeremiah which is one book back, chapter 17. Let's hold court for a second. You want to hold court? Let's hold court. 
When you go to court, usually there's a register, right? Someone that's going to write the stuff down. Am I right? See over there going crazy. He said, you get that? Yep, got that. There's a register. You know you have a register? People say, now, and, and now listen, I'm going to give you some of my own ideas with this, and that doesn't mean they're verbatim 100% correct, but they're so close you can believe it. All right? <laughs> listen. The Bible says this. People say, is God going to show a big screen of all my sin? Well, first of all, if you're in Christ, that, no, absolutely not. That's, that's done away with, and we'll get to that real quick. But if you're lost, you're going to be judged by your works. We're going to be judged by our works for things done for Christ, but you're going to be judged for your works, whether they be evil. All right? Get this. Get this very quickly. I hope you get this. It's so important. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of truth, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablets of their heart. The first thing God says there, I got to register, it's your heart. Your heart is writing down, writing down the things done, the deceitful deeds of humanity. And your heart is not writing down the things of your neighbor. Your neighbor's heart is doing a good job at that itself. Your heart is writing your own deeds on it. You got that? That's what God says. You're, you're, I'm going to write this with a pen, a hard pen of a diamond. I'm going to engrave it, engrave it on your heart. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Very quickly, turn to Romans chapter So we got the register. It's being written down. It's being written down on tablets in the heart. The deeds of men. Now. Chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. Who show the works of the law written on their what? There it is. Where is it written? The heart. Now, something is going to rise up against you. If we're lost, we don't know Christ, something's going to rise up against you. It says, their conscience also bearing witness. You got to have a witness in the court. You have to register. You have a witness. The Bible says, and listen, it's as plain as day there. It's written on the hearts of men, their deeds when they're evil. The conscience, the Bible says, is a witness to the fact of the heart. It says it right there. Your conscience is keeping a record of, the, of what a person does. God doesn't have to go up in his omniscience and sit there and say, mm, yeah, okay, okay, I got to remember what you did. Let's, oh, yep, yep, here it is, here it is. No, you're going to be a witness against yourself. You're not going to point at God and say, you're to blame, you're to blame. I could have did that tree, did this. No, 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 no. Get it. The heart, it's written on. The conscience is going to rear up. Now, you always need a, a prosecutor, right? And you need a defender if you're going to be in court, right? Well, look, it's right there. And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. There's your prosecutor and your defender, your accuser and your defender. It's going to be the heart and the conscience rearing up. And it is going, the Bible says, come against you. It's not your friend when it comes to the judgment seat. You say, well, what court, if this is true, Dave, what courtroom will we sit in? Well, it's found in the next verse. In the days, now get this. In the days when God will judge the secrets of men found in his heart, brought up by the conscience accusing him by Jesus Christ according to what you and I have done with the gospel that sounds pretty grave doesn't it but there is hope in one more verse there is hope and I want to I want to finish it off with this fascinating you got that that's making sense 
Go to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll close at this verse. The conscience will rear itself up. And the conscience will be a testimony against our sin in our life. But there is a way of escape. Look in verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Here it is. Those that are saved, it's right there. Cleanse your what? Conscience from dead works to serve a living God. In Christ, he purifies the conscience. It cannot come up against you. It cannot accuse you. It cannot sentence you on the day of wrath or the day of judgment because it has been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And God said the life of the, blood, uh, the, the, life of the flesh is in the blood. And we talked about last week, the way of death becomes the way of life. Skip over one more verse, chapter 10, verse 22. It says, let us draw near so we can draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from a what? Evil conscience in our body washed with the pure water, which is the word of God. It's this simple. You come to Christ, he cleanses the conscience, it can't come up and rear itself against you. You're saved and God has made you just. No matter what we do, we fail, absolutely, but the conscience can't come back against us. But to those, if you're here and you're lost, God said, I'll judge the secret things of you and they'll expose them and you're going to admit them yourself and you're going to come before the judge and your conscience is going to work with your heart and bear an accusation against you that you are the perpetrator and that you were not the victim and that you never came to Christ to have your conscience purified. I can't make it any plainer than that. I pray today, if you don't know Christ, and you've always looked at yourself as a victim, I hope you can look at yourself today and say, God, I'm not a victim according to you. I'm a perpetrator. I broke your law. I've sinned. I want your Christ. I want to go to heaven. I want to know him. I'll be down here standing. You come down. I'll be more glad. I have Sunday Square. I will spend time with you and talk to you and show you through the scripture how that you can know the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. For more information on our church, located in Cumberland, Maryland, please go to cumberlandcornerstone.org.